Thanks for listening to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. Our calling is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. We are a growing movement of transformed people reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. To learn more, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Well, good morning. My name is Elliot, and I am the student pastor here at Waterstone. Uh, I'm happy to be downstairs with you guys and able to uh, continue in our Back to Basics series. Raise your hand if you have heard of Robert Putnam. Robert Putnam. He is a professor at uh, Harvard University, and he's uh, well known for several publications, one of which is called Bowling Alone. Uh, In Bowling Alone, he tracks the bowling scores of bowling alleys throughout the 20th century. Now, before you pop out of your seat with excitement about what's about to come, let me tell you this. What he, what he believed was that there was a parallel between bowling scores in the 20th century and a cultural trend in America. You see, he didn't just look at bowling scores uh, captured by teams and leagues, groups of friends and family, but then he looked at groups like the NAACP, parent-teacher associations, uh, American Association of Architects, the American Institute of Nursing, the American Medical Institute. And he looks at multiple organizations and groups and notices the same trend. If you put up the slide with the graph, essentially what he realized was during the 1900s, so this is the 20th century, not really, it's a TV, but imagine that, During the 1900s, there's this rise uh, before and after the First World War leading into the Second World War. And there's a peak of civic engagement around the 1960s. At that point, though, all of these groups and organizations begin to take a strong, consistent, and steep plummet. But it's not just organizational uh, membership. It's also engagement and activity. So things like signing a petition, Uh, writing your congressman or congresswoman, uh, voting, uh, going to church, being part of a union, all of that begins to crash. And finally, not just with the younger generation or an older generation, but across generational boundaries. Robert Putnam's conclusion is that as we are closing on the 20th century, Americans have a trend that is crashing into the 21st century, which is isolation. This past week, I was reading an article on the New York Times. It was published uh, a little less than two years ago, and I want to read a portion of it to you. It's from another Harvard grad or uh, a physician out of Harvard, but he writes not just about the prevalence of isolation, but instead about the poison of isolation that he sees with many of his um, patience. It, it says this. Social isolation is a growing epidemic, one that's increasingly recognized as having dire physical, mental, and emotional consequences. Since the 1980s, the percentage of American adults who say they're lonely has doubled from 20 to 40%. A wave of new research suggests social separation is bad for us, Individuals with less social connection have disrupted sleep patterns, altered immune systems, more inflammation, and higher levels of stress hormones. One recent study found that isolation increases the risk of heart disease by 29% and stroke by 32%. 
Another analysis pooled data from 70 studies in 3.4 million people found that socially isolated individuals had a 30% higher risk of dying in the next seven years and that this effect was largest in middle age. Loneliness can accelerate cognitive decline in older adults and isolated individuals as, uh, are twice as likely to die prematurely as those with more robust social interactions. These effects start early. Socially isolated children have significantly poor health 20 years later, even after controlling for other factors. All told, loneliness is as important a risk factor for early death as obesity and smoking. The evidence on social isolation is clear. What to do about it is less so. A great paradox of our hyper-connected digital age is that we seem to be drifting apart. And this is his closing line. Increasingly, however, research confirms our deepest intuition. Human connection lies at the heart of human well-being. We as believers should not be surprised by Robert Putnam's book or by this New York Times article. Because long before there are clinical studies and Freud said a lot of weird stuff that got our attention. In our sacred text, we have God's words recorded as such. Genesis 2.18 says this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. God validates our need for one another. Think about this. Adam had no lack of a relationship with God. There is no reason to think he didn't have enough food, shelter, or security, and yet Adam was without. Why? Because he was isolated. Adam is literally the only human. Now, for some of you, isolation is not solely conceptual or intellectual. You know it more personally. You've tasted its bitterness, whether that's in a current season or a previous season. You know what it's like to be lonely and to sit in that place. And God knows that pain. He validates that need, and then he gives us an answer. God's answer for our isolation for our loneliness is relationships. Now, when we read Genesis 2, we oftentimes think of marriage, right? Because Adam finds Eve, and it's a ooh-la-la moment. This is awesome. And they run off into the garden until the snake slithers along. And while Genesis 2 and 3 does show the first example of marriage we find in Scripture, the writer of Genesis is going beyond that. The first couple chapters of the Bible are more of a blueprint, a manual on humanity. And it's, it's the author's way of telling us, the reader, that we are made for more, that we are made for each other. Even Adam was never meant to be just Adam and God, and you're not meant to be just you and Jesus. God says himself here that he wants more for you than just you and him. It's always been communal. And so what I want to do is look at a passage uh, that is one of many passages in Scripture that, that exemplifies this, that shows us the importance 
of communal engagement. So I'm going to read Acts chapter 2 out loud. I'm going to ask if you would just to listen as I read. 42 through 47, we'll start. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the early church. And to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Okay, there are three people in this audience who are taking notes. If you are anything like my students, those three people caught what I just said. Everybody else is planning on getting it as we move along. So, because of that, I'm going to ask for your help this morning, all right? In two ways. First, we're going to read it one more time, but actually you're going to read it one more time. And if you don't mind humoring me, I'm going to ask the women to read what is bolded and the men to read what's underlined. Now, the second thing I'd ask for your help with is as you're reading, pay attention to the distinction Luke makes between the large group gathering and the smaller, more intimate gathering of believers. If you pay attention, the women will be reading the parts that that show larger gatherings, and the men will be reading parts that show the smaller, more intimate setting. So here we go again. I'll start us off so we don't have one person just racing ahead. I'll set the pace, and then I'll let you take it from there. Ladies, if you would. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Thank you so much for doing that. I'll give you guys a round of applause. You can not clap. I'll just clap what one person did. Thank you. Luke is recording how the early church functioned. And he is letting us know that there were two significant parts to how they operated. And at the end of this section, this passage, he says this, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's Luke's way of stamping approval on their structure. He's not just saying, and the churches were growing and they were becoming big and beautiful. He's saying, no, lives were being changed. People were being transformed. Outsiders were seeing that the love of Christ actually makes a difference on people's lives. And this was the structure they were using. I want to look at verse 42 specifically and just emphasize the word fellowship there. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, Real quick, um, that would have been in Solomon's temple. That's the large corporate gathering. That's a place where truth is not only explained, it's expounded upon. 
That's where there is corporate worship in the large, bigger setting where you can see by just walking in and not knowing the people that are sitting around you that you are part of something bigger than yourself. That's the large gathering. But then he says this, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. If you're like me, uh, I grew up in a church with a fellowship hall. Did anyone else grow up in a church with a fellowship hall? Okay. Um, and, and the word fellowship was used all the time, right? I grew up in, um, in uh, the South and in a Southern Baptist church. So it was always, we got to have some good fellowship. This, this was the announcement every week. This, this weekend, we're going to be having a hot dog dinner in our fellowship hall. We would love for all of you to come and join us for that. And so I grew up hearing that all the time. And fellowship meant running around with my friends in a fellowship hall with a stomach full of hot dogs. <laughs> for many of us, that's what we think of. It's casual social gathering. And that is not what Luke is communicating the word fellowship here, it gets translated different ways because obviously the Bible, the New Testament is written in Greek. And so the actual word is koinonia. It's kind of fun to say. And, and this is an abbreviated definition for it. Fellowship, so there we go. Community, communion, joint participation or common life. This is the first time that any writers of the Bible actually use the word. But luckily for us, it's used 20 times in the entire New Testament. And because of that, we can kind of look at its field of range and see how it has various uses and therefore it has a robust meaning. Koinonia was not just lax, hot dogs, and kids running around in the background. Instead, it was an active and participating community. These were people who sat down and didn't just eat. They sat down, shared a meal, broke bread, and knew each other's lives. They exchanged details of their week and their coming week, of their marriage, of their children, of their lack of marriage. These were people who actively participated in fellowship. We see this when we look at verses 46 and 47. Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. Again, Luke is saying, there was a corporate part of our worship. We met every day, and that's where we heard the letters that you and I have in a bound book called the Bible. They had letters from Peter, and it was John's first letter. Oh, did you guys hear? We just got John's second letter? They would hear the teaching of the apostles, but they would break bread in their homes and eat together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. There was something they found, koinonia, in the small gathering that they could not find in the large corporate setting. And the tr same is true for you and I. Do we have any Outback fans in the house? Outback fans. I love the Bloomin' Onion. Raise your hand if you like the Bloomin' Onion. I will tell you, Saturday night service, I had like three people who go like this. That's me. I can't let my wife see this, but I do. Bloomin' Onions are the, are the onions that are kind of like fried and whatever. Even if I found out they're terrible for me, I will still enjoy them. But no one goes to Outback because of Bloomin' Onions, right? All right? Or you go for one reason. If you go to Outback, you go for one reason. Say it with me. It is a steak. Awesome. You go to Outback for the steak. Now, if you don't believe me, think about this. 
You've never been sitting in another room of your house and yelled to your roommate or your spouse or whoever it might be, hey, I'm really in the mood for some steamed broccoli and an overpriced house salad drenched with blue cheese. Want to go to Outback? You don't do that. No one does that. I don't do that. Here's another reason if I haven't convinced you yet, right? When you go to Outback, if you have half your steak left on your plate and the server comes, do you ask for a box? There's a right answer here, people. Yes, all right, there we go. We're learning, we're tracking. If you have half of your leftover generic, overpriced house salad drenched in blue cheese, do you take it home? No, there we go, good life choices. <laughs> why, why is that? Simply put, it's because one is valuable and one is not. One is important and one is not. I think if we're being honest with ourselves, some of us or many of us or most of us view the corporate gathering and the smaller, more intimate setting of church, of our faith engagement, like steak and salad. The first church, if we look back at 42, Luke is really clear. Verse 42 says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to a large group setting, and, and they devoted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. It's not steak and salad. I think it's more surf and turf. I know, this is cheesy, and I'm sticking with the Outback thing you're thinking to yourself. All right. But, but really, it, I, I've been married for three weeks, all right? So I have a lot of advice. <laughs> That's right. A lot of wisdom. Yeah, you can clap for that. Um, for the first time in my life, I've started to eat this thing. I've never really heard of it before. It's called leftovers. <laughs> okay? Married men say, oh, yeah, I know. They didn't tell me about that before I said I do. So I eat leftovers now, right? Now, I got to tell you. If I go and I get surf and turf, if I get steak and lobster, it doesn't matter how small the morsel is on my plate. If there's anything left, I'm taking it home. I don't care if there's like, like I spit out half my lobster and that's all I have left. I'm gonna take it home in a box. Why? Because I know that both are valuable. Because I value both is another way to put that. The early church valued both, the large group setting and the smaller, more intimate gathering. We ought to value both. Now, to tell you the truth, most of you, just by virtue of being here, don't struggle with the uh, large group gathering side of things. You you see the purpose in that too. You come here and, and rightly so. In no way am I knocking that. You, you know that truth is expanded upon, that you get to see uh, other believers that live in your neighborhood that are part of something bigger than you, and there's corporate worship. But I think the place we struggle with is the smaller gathering. So if you would, I want to take a moment and expand on why that is actually worth boxing up and taking home 
I was going to say today, but that feels really corny, so I'm not going to. But why the smaller gathering is worth valuing and viewing as important. Uh, Verse 44 says this. All the believers were together and had everything in common. The first reason the smaller gathering is important is because it's there that we find a profound and powerful unity. Don't get me wrong, you can find a sense of unity here, but it won't be the same as a smaller gathering where you are known and you look into the eyes of the person talking to you and sharing their lives. Luke uses the phrase, they had all things in common. Now, according to our common vernacular, that means we have everything in common. It's like two young people in love. Oh, mom, you've got to meet them. We have everything in common, right? And so if that was true in this room, that would mean that everyone gets on an airplane and you're all aisle people. Raise your hand if you're an aisle person. Yeah, my type of people. All right, raise your hand if you're a window person. Okay, some of your hands didn't go up because you don't like raising your hands in service. I'm going to assume that you're a middle person, so joke's on you. (laughs) We also know that we have people in this room who are dog people. Raise your hand if you're a dog person. Yeah, that's right. Okay, all right. Now, say it with me. Say it with me. Raise your hand if you are a person who should find another church. (laughs) No. No, really, there are, there are multiple churches in this area, so um, I'm kidding. I love cats. I do love cats. I'm a dog person, but I love cats. But, but the point is, that's not what Luke had in mind when he tells us that the believers had all things in common. He's telling us something deeper and something far more important. It's not that they had all things in common. They had the one who is above all in common. You see, when you meet in the small setting of believers, you get something that you won't find if you stay here. That's a relationship. You're not just friends with the person you are talking to and getting to know and meeting with. You're brothers and sisters. There's spiritual blood that you share, and blood is thicker than water. There's something about the small gathering that is powerful and profound and that many of us are missing out on. Verse 45 continues to say, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. The second reason it's important, it was just up there, is that people's needs were met. You can't meet the needs of other people if you only come and sit in stadium-style seating that's cushioned for an hour and 15 minutes a week. And, and I, again, I think this is so important. It's the stake of our faith. But you won't be able to have your needs met or be the person meeting someone else's needs if you stay only in that seat. It was several years ago on Christmas Eve. Uh, I had, we had just finished our last Christmas Eve service here at Waterstone. And at the time, um, I was heading over to my, my now wife's parents' house. I was going to spend the evening with them. And um, I remember I got out of the parking lot, turned right on bowls, took a left, was getting ready to take a left onto 470. 
turned on to um, 470 on the entrance ramp and just gunned it because I was in a 2000 Corolla and that's what you have to do anytime you want to go somewhere, all right? Um, now, this is what I didn't know. I park on gravel. That my my um, driveway is not paved and so I park in different spots at different times. I had had a heavy oil leak for the last month and because I was parking in different spots and there's already so many spots on the gravel I had no idea I was about to drive my engine dry on 470 you don't have to be a mechanic in the room to know that that's a terrible idea right so before I got to Ken Carl my car sounded like a noisemaker and I had to pull off Needless to say, that Christmas break, I did not travel a lot. Now, I can laugh about it because it's been a while, but the truth is, at the time, I was a full-time seminary student, uh, supporting myself, and part-time working at the church. And it was a real hit. And you know what was worse? Is I didn't want to tell people. Because how embarrassing is it to say, there was no engine oil whatsoever in my car, and I got on 470. You can laugh at that. Three people are laughing under their breath. It's okay. But I was actually in a bad place. I remember being in the hub outside on a Sunday morning, and there was a person who volunteers with our students. And we started conversation and, and talking about Christmas break. And sure enough, my car, Christmas Eve miracle came up, how I lost a car like that, right? And I, I shared with this person my need, not thinking anything of it. And they ended up telling me that their family had an old car. It was an old Jeep Cherokee that was 25 years old. And they said, rather than making an unwise financial purchase, you can use this car until you find a car and have enough money to make a good decision. I drove that car for probably four or five months. It was an immense and massive blessing. But why do I tell this to you? So that you too could drive a 25-year-old Jeep Cherokee? No, right? I tell you because it's only when we get out of this room and we prioritize the more intimate settings of our faith, that we meet each other's needs and have our needs met. The early church was onto something when they lived the surf and turf life, when they prioritized both large and small gatherings. If we keep looking, uh, verses 46 and 47... Just kidding. That was my way of not knowing what I'd say next. So (laughs) I just remembered. Uh, We we will go back to 46 and 47, I promise. All right. Just lost credibility. Great. Some of you are not bought in right now. All right? Just, Just let's level with each other. We'll have a conversation. The four people that are can zone out for a moment. And everyone else who's a skeptic, Let's talk, because I know that many of us have taken out our sermon sniffers, and you know I'm about to talk about small groups. (laughs) Yeah, you do. Okay. All right. So I just want to pause and, and name that. First off, 
Small groups are one way to value the smaller gathering of believers. They are by no means the way. God's will for our life, that blueprint we started by talking about, is for you to be connected and know other believers for many reasons, but it doesn't have to happen in a small group setting. We do provide the small group setting because we think it is a really good way for it to happen, but it's not the only way, and I want to just name that up front. Here's the second thing. Some of you, if not most of you, have tried small groups out before, and it has gone terribly wrong. You know what I'm talking about. It has not been encouraging. You've lost your Tuesday night, your DVR didn't record your show, and you're home and you're mad with your spouse, right? Some of us, that's our small group experience. And maybe every other small group kickoff you decide or your friend or your roommate or your wife or husband talks you into going and trying it one more time. But you feel as though you've had enough. And this sermon is not necessarily gonna budge you out of that place. So I wanna just acknowledge that that's some of our experience in the room and that's okay to be there. I was on staff for three years before I found any sort of small group I liked. I remember going out to um, different age groups, seeing, well, what about people who have things in common with me? Surely that'll work. No, it didn't. What about people who have nothing in common with me? Multi-generational age groups. Maybe this group will work. It didn't. What if I try a different time? Maybe it's just Monday nights. Just all the creeps come out on Monday nights. So I go to Tuesday night. They're still there. I'm kidding. There are no creeps in any of my small groups. Disclaimer. Um, All right. I remember the, uh, probably the lowest point of my small group journey. I went to a small group and I remember showing up a little late. Didn't know anybody. I was going by myself. I get there. There's snacks on the table. There's drinks. This is great. And there's one other person. It's a mom. We are not in the same stage of life. I am struggling to find anything to talk about. And I will tell you that night, I redefined the term small group. Okay? <laughs> that was my journey for three years. Some of you can say, well, yeah, that's, that relates to me. The time frame's different. Never been in a room where it's just me and one other person for a small group and cashew nuts. But, but I get what you're saying, Elliot. Can I tell you this? I am so glad I kept looking and I kept going. There was a time, probably about eight to nine months, I just stopped. So so if you're there, if you've had a year or two year stretch or whatever, I've been there as well. But I kept going. And the small group that I'm in now, again, I'll tell you, I didn't walk in and immediately just the, the room stopped and everyone in there is my soulmate but I am glad I kept going. A year later, I can tell you that I have a rich and robust relationship with my small group. Still, not everyone's my best friend in that group, but all of them are my friends and more importantly, brothers and sisters in my faith. Last uh, week, last week we went camping as a small group 
Um, and we went to Wellington Lake. Anyone ever been to Wellington Lake? Yeah, a couple of people. It's really beautiful. We went up there. Again, this is an experience I never would have had unless I kept going. In my small group, I am the man who's been married the least. Is that an awkward way to put that? Yes. Um, I'm the youngest married man in my small group. And you know what a joy it is when sometimes the girls would do their own thing and I can sit down with other guys who have been through the newlywed stage and the first house stage and the first animal stage and, and they can look at me and give me advice. Just eat the leftovers. <laughs> and as much as I joke about that, the truth is there really is something to being connected with other people. No one would tell me that if I only came to the large corporate gathering. And again, that is so important, but it is half of a whole. This past Friday, Madison and I, we got to go over to another couple from our small group's house. Um, They are in the middle of a move. I just want you to paint this picture for yourself. They're in the middle of a move, and they have um, a brand new puppy and a brand new baby. Yes, some of you just got that. Okay. Two bundles of joy equal one hectic, sleep-deprived life, turns out. So Madison and I, my wife, we went over and we just built furniture. We helped assemble the nursery. We unpacked boxes and fold them up and brought them to the garage. That's a way that we were able to meet the needs of someone else again. That fellowship, that koinonia, that joy would not have happened if one, I only came here, but two, if I hadn't kept going. Some of you this morning need to be invited to keep going. It doesn't have to be small group. We have a men's ministry, women's ministry, mothers of preschoolers, mops, 20s and 30s but we have structures for you to plug into, not because we think you don't have enough going on in your week, but because we know that God's design for you and I to live a fully engaged life only comes when we value the large setting and the smaller The last three things I want to share with you are what we find in small groups. I think we see them in verses 45 and 46, but let's go ahead and just put those three points up there if you would. Why we need small gatherings. It's there that we have consistent intimacy, something that is really crucial for us as humans, not even believers. This stuff translates outside of the Christian faith right here. That's because God put it in his manual for you and I on how we were made. Consistent intimacy, exuberant joy, and transparent relationships, a space for transparent relationships. So my encouragement to you, my my question is, are you willing? Again, it doesn't have to be small groups. That's an excellent way. Are you willing to live the surf and turf life? Are you willing to value the corporate gathering and the smaller setting? But if I'm honest, the real question for a lot of you are, or is, are you willing to keep trying? 
the early church, thanks, the early church broke bread continually. Uh, It's interesting, that's used twice in this short passage. And what that's a reference to is communion. Uh, Today, we're going to end our services taking communion. And so actually, if you're a communion um, uh, usher or if if you're doing communion, you can get up now. But communion has one major purpose, and rightly so. We come to the Lord's table, to the Lord's Supper. And as we break the bread and drink the wine or the grape juice, we remember his broken body and his blood poured out for us. And then Jesus says, you do this proclaiming that I will come again. And so let us do that this morning. But I want to encourage you to to add one more layer to that. Communion has always been a shared table. And so as you get up this morning, I would ask that you be mindful of that table being shared by many. People that you have many things in common with and those you have very little in common with, but all of which, if you're coming today, that you have the one who's above all, in common with. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning. Thank you for the corporate gathering. Thank you, Jesus, that you meet us here, that sometimes the anonymity of coming in here alone is actually exactly what we want and we need. Lord, I pray, though, that we would be motivated to have more than that, that we would have consistent joy, intimacy, and space for transparency, that we would live a fully engaged life. In Jesus' name, amen. After you've had a moment to reflect, I'd invite you to come join us today and partake in communion. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.